This episode is brought to you by Harmony. Please stay tuned for more information about them later in the episode. What's up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast, where twice a week I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, music, art, sports, politics, basically anyone with a good story to tell. Now, today's guest is fluent in roughly 15 coding languages, is a master of cryptography and a pioneer in the crypto space. He serves as the chief technology officer of both Bitfinex and Tether, two giants that offer unique challenges. My guess is that Paolo Arduino never sleeps. I'm looking forward to digging into the technical side of cryptocurrency, better understanding the ins and outs of both exchanges and stable coins, and hearing Paolo's thoughts on the future of cryptocurrency. Paolo Arduino, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for the really nice introduction, Scott, and thank you very much for your time and having me in your show. Well, thank you. So listen, as I said, you have two jobs that sound like enough work for 10 people. Can you talk about how you balance your role as CTO for both the top 10 exchange and the world's largest stablecoin? Well, um, I would say that uh, my, my main tasks during the day are coding, of course, because you know when I decided to become, or when I agreed to become CTO of both companies, one, the, the way I do things in both companies is that I need to set up my daily schedule my weekly schedule so that it, it leaves enough time for me to keep coding, right? So, of course, I oversight the business side of, um, uh, of Bitfinex, especially, and as well as other areas, and um, uh, aside coding. And on the Tether side, aside coding, security, and cryptography, and so on, I oversight basically the still the business development on more the retail and new, let's say, micropayment side. Right, less less institutional, more institutional side, more the um, the retail side. So yeah, I try to code as much as I can during the day, and uh, especially in in the evening and during the weekends. So I I, I really feel bad if I cannot you know uh, work on um, my uh, preferred projects in uh, in both companies. On the Bitfinex side, I like to well, I'm still the lead developer of uh, of the Metrin engine. I like it doing uh, myself because it's the you know, is the core of the um, if the corest part of the core is like that thing that uh, cannot ever go down is that thing that needs to resist to the wrath of God. So it makes me excited to to work on it. So I will never. Well, I, I of course I have people that have that work with me on that side, but it's 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 a beauty. So I want to keep working on that. I mean, that's incredible because I, every time you generally talk to a CTO or someone who moves up the ladder and is in charge, they generally don't do the work anymore. They oversee and manage, right? So uh, it's, it's interesting to me that you spend so much time still coding. Well, but how you can, and I, I know that, right? So I, when I talk to people that are in my role, uh, that's, uh, that, that's something that I hear a lot, but I feel like uh, that I would not be able to manage a really extremely competent team without being hands-on, right? So if I don't learn new languages, if I don't uh, do the dirty work myself. I I, I will. Uh, my fear, my biggest fear, is that I will lose control and I will lose oversight on the quality of the project, the code, and the, the infrastructure of, of the companies. So that that's why also I'm doing that. So I think there's probably a lot of confusion or misperception as to the relationship between those two companies, right? Uh, how how Bitfinex and Tether interact, uh, how intertwined they actually are, or whether they're completely separate. Can you talk about 
not your role specifically, but how the two companies uh, work together or are related. Sure. So uh, the two companies have are separate companies, but they have some, um, uh, let's say, share some uh, key personnel. For example, I'm an example, right? So I'm CTO on both companies. So they have distinct uh, teams that work on, um, you know, on you know, the marketing side, on the on the tenor side, for example, we have the blockchain integration team that is focusing just on launching our stable coin on uh, different blockchains, right? We, we did, uh, we started from Omni, then Ethereum, Tron, EOS, uh, Algorand, uh, Liquid, and so on. And um, on the tenor side, instead, it's more like a traditional front-end, back-end development team with, yes, blockchain integration, but it's mainly integrating uh, blockchains into the business workflow. So, Actually, we have many different teams, although some key people, as I said, are, um, are shared across the two companies. So, um, yes, there is some confusion uh, that, you know, they are, in a, uh, they are the same company. They are not. Uh, but um, as I said, uh, there is some overlapping. That makes sense. So what are the unique challenges day to day of keeping an exchange online and running on the Bitfinex side? Because, well, first of all, it used to seem like it was unique to crypto that we would see outages all the time. Everybody knows that every time there's volatility, Coinbase is down. It's become kind of a meme, something we see across the industry. But now even in legacy markets, you know, when there's volatility, we've seen Robinhood go down for long periods of time. So it's nice that it's not unique to crypto, but is keeping the exchange online and active during volatility the largest challenge? What are the other challenges that come with being, you know, the CTO of an exchange? So I think that uh, the main challenge is probably making sure that uh, you can do the least number of downtimes per year possible. Um, in BitConnect, we tend to do from one to two maximum. We, um, we, are, uh, we have a different setup from the infrastructure point of view than other exchanges. So for my, let's say, own preference, I decided to move from um, using AWS and the cloud services to get our own cabinets in a physical data center, picking uh, the servers that we wanted with the, with the CPUs that we wanted, hard drives and, um, and, and RAM and everything, right? Because first of all, virtualization is one of those things that could lead to, um, to possible hacks, especially if you are not, if you are renting a virtual machine on an infrastructure that you don't know about, right? So we have uh, you. I think that was the Spectre bug uh, into Intel that was causing some leaks, and that is specifically an issue when you are running on a cloud environment, right? So since we are running nodes that host uh, our customers' money, for me the security and ensuring that I'm doing the best I can in order to uh, to remove all the possible uh, points of attack that at least I know, that's critical, right? So we decided in 2018 to move the entire infrastructure from AWS to physical data center. And so that creates additional challenges compared to the competition because then we have to, you know, if we want to have an upgrade to our own firewalls, uh, switches and so on, we have to properly coordinate that to avoid downtime or to, do, uh, to have the least amount of downtime as possible. So, um, but yeah, I think that what we are trying to, when you have to build um, an, an exchange, you have to always think, okay, how I can create things that will just 
um, will allow me to do upgrades like new features, new new pairs, new uh, like uh, new derivatives pairs, and so on. All these things should happen without the necessity of any downtime. So. Actually, the designing and the architecture is the most complex thing. And of course, when there is volatility, I mean, Bitfinexter existed extremely well in uh, during the 2020 March peak. That is the moment when I saw the, there are two actual moments in the crypto industry, well, recent crypto industry, when the volatility was really crazy. You know, the night, well, it was night for me. It was in London at that time. It was a crypto compare conference. Um, in when, uh, when Donald Trump announced that, uh, uh, the, the, the basically the stop of incoming flights from uh, from the rest of the world during the, uh, the start of the COVID, uh, COVID pandemic, then you, you have seen the market basically melting down from 50-60%, right? Then Bitfinex was able to keep up, uh, almost every exchange was, basically was, was down. And then when uh, Elon Musk announced that Tesla was uh, investing in, uh, in, in Bitcoin, it was February, I believe it was uh, mid-February 2021, that is was also on the other side was a spike, but was another crazy moment. I believe that um, we maxed out our number of uh, concurrent users as well, orders per second, right? It was the day we were handling um, up to, um, I think it's around 500 million orders in a single day. That was our uh, our our peak, like was, was extremely crazy. And those moments are the, the ones like you, because in, during the rest of the year, you know, the market is quiet. Yes, there are some peaks. There is a little bit of volatility. But when the, that, when that, those particular days in the year happen, you know if you are doing a good job or not, right? Because you, you know you, you are stress testing the entire infrastructure. The Super Bowl. <laughs> Show up. Yes, exactly. You got to be ready for the big game. So that obviously begs the question then. There's, a, there's always going to be black swan events, volatility, those you were able to react to. How do you, assuming that you believe that there's going to be mass adoption of cryptocurrency and this is only going to get bigger, how do you scale for the potential of the industry rather than just keep up with, you know, what's happening right now? That's a great question. So um, if you are starting to serve, you know, now we are serving millions to tens of millions of users, right? But if you want to scale and serving billions of users on a single platform, you have to become of the size of Google, basically, right? Because then you have to have uh, a part redundancy. You have to be able to probably have multiple machine engine service, service in different parts of the world. Because one problem that sometimes is neglected in our industry is that, you know, we are, for example, our data center is in Switzerland. So if you are connecting from, uh, I don't know, Asia, the latency will be really high, right? So uh, most of the market makers and, and most uh, professional traders are bringing the infrastructure close to us. But if you're, let's say that you want to scale to billions of users, you want to give them the, the highest efficiency, probably we, you can start thinking to a setup where you have multiple machine engines in key locations in the world and they really have that cross connect between each other and they talk to each other in an extremely um, tight way. So that is uh, probably how I would do it if I need to basically serve uh, professional and uh, high level, um, high frequency trading firms across the world in different locations that if they want to stay in their own locations. Otherwise, one the, the beauty of our machine engine, the way I design it is that you can scale, so I can run it on the Raspberry, and also I can run it on our mainframe, and also I can run a multiple mainframes. So now you can scale to you know 
hundreds or thousands of cores on a, and um, terabytes of RAM. So let's say that you want, if you want to stay in a single location, you can still, you know, have like this huge mainframe really tightly connected through cross connects on network on your own cabinet, but still you can process these across multiple servers. That's the beauty of our machine engine. That's why also I like it. I like calling on. I love it. So basically you have uh, systems in place where if one fails, <laughs> you have plenty of backup systems and but yeah. it would be, I mean, it would be interesting to see crypto at a billion people, right? Uh, you know, yes. a billion people using crypto, which is still only one seventh of the world, but you know, uh, if we had a billion <laughs> people interacting with these exchanges and trying to buy and sell on a regular basis, I have to imagine that would be quite a stress test. Yes. That, yes, because then you will have hundreds of, uh, you know, hundreds of high frequency traders or thousands of high frequency traders plus all the retail. So the noise that right now, for example, we handle probably one to five billion events per day where events are orders, you know, balance changes and things like that. Right. And we publish uh, several, several, several billions of uh, packets per day in terms of information, right? Book updates and so on. But and imagine how much that could be if you can have actually one billion one, one billion people. It's, it's like you have to become really of the size of Cloudflare that is servicing like 30% of the internet. Uh, all, um, you know. and, and we see what happens when Cloudflare goes down. <laughs> Absolutely. Because <laughs> it's, it's not really uncommon. Uh, you know, we, we've all seen those Cloudflare uh, warnings come up. So, uh, you know, uh, even at the largest level, there's obviously challenges. So... I think at a very basic level, probably a lot of people would like to know or don't understand what a stable coin is, right? I think superficially people understand that it's a dollar you know, backed coin or another currency one for one, but what does that look like from a programming side? And what are the unique challenges of keeping a stable coin stable and utilizing it? Sure. So, well, the, 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 uh, easiest definition of a stable coin is dollar and blockchain. So that's actually the you know the entire idea that Tether had in 2014. Okay, we have Bitcoin, it's great. Now, can we use the same technology to put the dollar on a blockchain? And uh, yeah, and how, that's how it started the Tether. We the beauty of stable coins is that now you can get uh, uh, compared to compared to um, dollars on a traditional banking rails is that you can program them. Well, the, it means that you can have a um, smart contract that can interact with other smart contracts and then it can um, do things like uh, handle payments, handle settlements and many, many other things, right? So the, when we say, so there are two things that are quite exciting about the DeFi industry is one is um, uh, programmability and the other one is compos composability. So you can compose uh, different actions so that you can trigger action from multiple smart contracts, from multiple DeFi projects, and they happen atomically on a blockchain. I believe that is a really interesting and really beautiful way of uh, ensuring, let's say, atomicity and ensuring uh, safety of operations on a blockchain and or in a financial in a financial environment. So um, stable coins are um, probably one of the best way to attract, I believe, uh, the next wave of people. We were talking about uh, bringing the billions of people into to crypto. And actually, you know, if, if I talk to my father or, you know, someone that does not uh, know much about, uh, about uh, crypto, 
uh, it's easier for him to think, okay, I have $10 in the pocket. Now, instead of having a pocket, I'm used to Apple Pay or Google Pay. Now, I, instead of having those, I have just my other mobile application where I have my $10, right? And they don't, most of the people in the future will not care about the transport layer, but will care about the benefits of the transport layer, right? So when it comes to stable coins, why they are so important? Right now, we, you know, in the past months, we talked with uh, many people um, across the world that uh, are, yes, in our industry, but they, they are from Africa, they are from Latin America, Venezuela, for example, Argentina, um, Asia. And the, the beautiful story that I hear is that everyone, almost everyone in the streets knows about Tether, right? And not because Tether did a good job in, in the sense, everything happened organically. We never spent a cent, or Tether and Bitfinex are pretty known to be quite cheap on marketing in the sense, right? So we never, we never do, you know, we never rented stadiums and things like that. We never do crazy things. But everything that we got, especially on the Tether side, has been organically, right? So people, why people use, why people in Africa or in, or in Latin America know Tether? It's because they, they have two choices. They want to, they, maybe they work in Europe, they work in, uh, you know, in, um, more let's say uh, financial advanced countries and they need to spend money home right they can decide to use monogram that costs like eight eight to ten percent or they can try they might want to use uh, a standard credit cards and still cost uh, maybe three four percent while tether costs zero just the blockchain fees and you know, if you pick your own blog, if you pick like Tron, Solana, use you can you know liquid, you basically don't pay any almost any fees. Right. So it's a way to let normal people mm, keeping the most value of the wealth that they work really hard for. That's what we got, right? So that's the, the common the common thing that all these people told us. And I think that's beautiful because I mean. We thought that could be the case, but as I said, we, we didn't invest much in making that happen. It happened organically, so I'm, I'm really proud of that because it means that when the best ideas, they work without the need of pushing them, right? Yeah, remittances are a huge, are a huge problem. Obviously, El Salvador is adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. I think 35% of their GDP is remittances or something. That said, why do people need to send Bitcoin if they can send stable coins? There's no volatility. It's faster. Have stable coins replaced Bitcoin in the peer-to-peer -peer cash arena? I don't think anyone has an argument about which one stores value better long time, long term, because a dollar, it's still a dollar. But do you think that stable coins are a superior peer-to-peer -peer cash and have basically eliminated that use case for other cryptocurrencies? So you, you know, I'm a I'm a big Bitcoiner, right? So I, I love Bitcoin and 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 um, I would never uh, place Tether on top of Bitcoin. I think that Tether is uh, complementary to, um, so is, is like uh, orthogonal to, to Bitcoin in a way, right? So it's basically is um, an easier entry level for most of the people because uh, you could try to explain them Bitcoin and you, you have to invest quite some resources because not everyone has the financial knowledge required to understand how the economics around um, around Bitcoin work, and uh, they also are afraid of volatility. Also, because you know sometimes mainstream media 
uh, help to spread news about you know the the extreme volatility of Bitcoin. Yes, of course, if you bought Bitcoin ten years ago, you would be extremely happy of such volatility, right? So it, that really doesn't help. And, and stable coins are a kind of a solution to that problem, to that entry level problem, because then from a stable coin you can pass easily to Bitcoin. Also, on almost an atomic way, there are you know things like atomic swaps on on blockchain. So the more you know about the crypto world then you can start from stablecoin and you can grow in the, on the in the crypto world and then you will arrive to bitcoin that's great so it's just a smooth transition and for most of the people for the normal people i see that the, how stable coins are extremely appealing for you know super simple no volatility they don't have to worry about it so don't we don't you think that we'll see banks start to use stable coins i mean we've seen in the united states already it sort of was passing last year that the occ said banks could start testing stablecoins rather than SWIFT and ACH and all of these dinosaur protocols and programs that they've been using in the past. I mean, anyone who's used it knows it's faster and easier. Do you think that that will be adopted by legacy systems? So um, this is a good question, right? I don't want to, to, to annoy you too much, but my before entering Bitcoin, my career was trying to was I was building software for hedge funds and uh, mainly hedge funds in, in in London, right? And I had to deal every single day with uh, um, with reconciling numbers between banks, trading venues, um, uh, custodians, and it was such a waste of time, right? That's why I I loved uh, Bitcoin at first time because just before understanding the potential as a currency, really on honestly. I thought, okay, this is great because you know the beauty of Bitcoin is that it's atomic, is is safe in the sense that you don't have to you don't need reconciliation, right? So uh, let's say you don't have all the data is is um, is correct at all the times, right? Apart, you know, if, apart, let's let leave aside the fifty one percent percent attacks and things like that. But that data is consistent. That's the right word. The data is always consistent. Now. Imagine, so that's why I think that the central banks will look at blockchains as a technology to uh, update the um, SWIFT and ACH uh, really old, uh, old way of, of sending money. Because dollar is already digital, euro is already digital, majority of dollars and euro, euros are already digital, but they are moved on a really outdated system that is a set of databases that they have failures, they need to reconcile them, Lots of people on the phone and sending data back and forth, making sure that everything uh, squares out. And that's not how it should be. It should be a, a blockchain-based system. Adopt even a private blockchain system adopted by central banks would solve most of the problems that they have today. Will make it cheaper to maintain, faster to transact, and so on. Right, much more scalable. So I believe that uh, we'll see central banks issuing CBDCs. So central bank um, um, digital uh, currency. That and sometimes I, I hear the question: Okay, they will uh, will they uh, outpace or will they replace Tether or other stable coins? And my and my answer is I don't think so because I don't see the you know the Fed or the Central European Bank issuing on Ethereum or issuing on Solana, right? So they will just replace the outdated infrastructure. They will. What they're planning to do from what I hear is that they are launching a parallel infrastructure, right? Based on a private ledger uh, or private blockchain. So that over time, they will start moving 
the more the more banks will integrate the new system, they will they will start dragging the the, the liquidity from the old system, right? That's how you do usually do this ten-year, uh, fifteen-year long transition on the on the software side. So I see that happening, but I don't see uh, the US Central European Bank issuing on Ethereum. That's why, basically, for for Tether, instead of receiving wires like uh, via Squid, or we will receive just cash via a, just a wire, will be still called wire, will just change the transport layer. And we, as a private and issue stable coins, we will take care of issuing stable coins on, on, on public blockchain. So what are the risks associated with stable coins? That's, it all works obviously exceptionally well in a perfect environment, but I mean, you guys have definitely been no strangers to controversy, of course, like there's no, whether it's been justified or not, which I don't believe it is. I know you guys re released your backing, you know, you made that all very transparent. I never had any issue with Tether. I use it and always have. But what are the risks associated? Because it's obviously, you know, uh, it's code. Can it become volatile at certain moments? Or is there a risk of a bank run and it becoming insolvent? Are there risks associated with stable coins? So uh, that's a good question, right? And basically, that this is one of the most discussed topics in, in, in our industry. Because I think that... Um, First of all, stable coins have uh, need um, need clear guidances, right? Um, we started with Tether in 2014, and there were, were no rules for stable coins because there were no stable coins. There was no concept of a stable coin, so we created that, and we had to start discussing with regulators around the world to make sure that we could do something that was aligned with a legislation that didn't have. But they usually what you, what happens is that you take the most similar thing to what you are trying to do and you try to apply that, right? So from 2014, of course, 2017 arrived and Tether reached, the was the first time at the end of 2017 when Tether reached 1 billion. And then in 2019, Tether reached 4 billion. And then now we are 69 billion, right? So, so it's, and why you do that, you have to keep discussing regulators because they, they start understanding that you know before when you are small they don't even lose much of time to to regulate you because they don't put the uh, they don't start this heavy machine of regulation until there is a really really good compelling case and we are seeing this year in 2021 that the compelling case is there right we are because at the beginning so in 2000 so beginning 2020 we are still yeah we are still pretty small in we got a, basically a 30,000 percent increase in one year for, for that, right? So we couldn't believe it ourselves. So I cannot imagine, you know, the rest of the world, right? So um, we are now um, averaging 120 billion of total uh, issued stable coins around the globe. So that's we. So that's why uh, regulators are taking us uh, more seriously. And um, also, by the way, I love having competitors because you cannot you cannot call something an industry if you are alone, right? So you have to have competitors, and you have so. The, the sum of the voices uh, and the sum of the voices that ask for regulation and clear guidances will help the, the stable coins industry to grow and become better. And, uh, you know, and so I, I really like that. So I believe that uh, in 2020, end of 2021, begin 2022, we will see more uh, rules uh, required for, uh, for stable coins to operate. And we're welcoming that because 
in the end, we, we believe that our portfolio is extremely, extremely stable. We had, you know, in, we never refuse um, redemption. We have our portfolio is extremely liquid. Our cash funds is, uh, it covers the, uh, um, is much higher than the biggest uh, redemption that we had in a single day. Um, even if there is a, even if there is a mass redemption, we can fulfill it. And we, we, we resisted, we had our own, it's not like hypothetical anymore. We had our own stress test, right? In, in 2020, March, the market crashed and, uh, you know, we never had a problem with that. And the, the, the most important thing is the peg is always $1, right? So you, you are seeing, so from uh, 2019, when the Niagara investigation started till today, Tether did nothing uh, um, aside growing and keeping the, 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 um, the peg stable. So you have you you are in a situation where everything public because you know the, the our dealings with the regulators is being public. Then the so people could have shorted tether, people could have you know uh, with all the misinformation that was around. Still, tether maintained the peg. We arrived at a point where in 2021 we were able to settle with an onion and publish the attestation. Now it's quarterly. We went one step further and we published the breakdown reserves. We and 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 the, in the first breakdown reserves, that was when the commercial paper stuff came public, right? And then, um, then what we listened to the community and we said, okay, let's do one step more, and then let's publish the ratings of the commercial papers. That are uh, that are the vast majority is A2 or or better, and uh, is also the rating is not made by you know the the shop uh, nearby your your home is. Is like from uh, Sutter Poor's Woodies and Fitch, right? So that's how you professionalize and you create a healthy framework to, to have a, a growing stablecoin that can guarantee safety, that can guarantee uh, fast redemptions, that can guarantee to be extremely liquid, and so on. So we are seeing other stablecoins following our steps in diversifying their portfolio. Uh, it's, and in the end, the people can say, yeah, other stable coins have less commercial papers, have different ratios. But the beauty of it is now is everything is public. So yeah. people can do their own choices, right? We are not pointing a gun to anyone and say, you have to buy Tether. No, everyone can, and all our competitors are doing much more marketing than us. So we, we are not pushing anyone to use Tether. Happens organically, people can choose. There is, is a free world, right? So the beauty of crypto is, it's a free word, lots of transparency, lots of information out there. Do your informed choice. Guys, I'm really excited to be sponsored by Harmony. I know all of us have traded their coin one in the past, but what they're fundamentally doing is a game changer. Harmony is your open platform for assets, collectibles, identity, and governance. Think of it as the one to bridge all blockchains. Harmony is open and insanely fast with two second transaction finality and a hundred times lower fees than Ethereum. Their secure bridges offer cross-chain asset transfers with Ethereum, Binance, and almost every single other chain. Maybe most exciting is that Harmony, in cooperation with Sushi, will be providing $4 million in incentives for liquidity mining. Find out more about this program and build something yourself at thewolfofallstreets.link slash harmony. That's thewolfofallstreets.link slash harmony. Build on harmony, run on all chains. So speaking of regulation, as you said, they're clearly taking notice, especially in the United States. Gary Gensler just had a Senate hearing and he, for some reason, 
started calling stable coins stable value coins. Um, there's a lot of, I guess, conjecture as to why he did that based on other existing regulations for things with similar names. Do you think that stable coins should be considered securities? Well, I, I don't think so, right? So they are, um, so for example, we don't have, first of all, we, when you call something a security, you have also to talk about the jurisdiction. For example, um, Tether is not servicing U.S. customers, um, is not onboarding U.S. customers and so on. So uh, it's important to understand in which regulatory framework you are evaluating the concept of being, of being a security. But uh, for example, it does not provide an interest. Um, so we are seeing um, uh, maybe other stable coins offering in, uh, products that have an interest on top of it. So I don't know about the others, but uh, Tether, I mean, the way it is set up is definitely not a security. Yeah, I think the second question or third question of the Howie test is if there's an expectation of gain when you purchase yeah. something. And so and <laughs> I would think that inherently the idea that it's stable uh, would mean that you are using it to transact and have no expectation that it's an investment and it's going to grow in value. It's really interesting. So you obviously talked about the fact that one of your big challenges is building out on every chain, right? We're seeing just chains exploding left left and right. It's not a world anymore where you just build on Ethereum and you send. So one of the use cases for stablecoins is always to be able to send a small amount of money from one person to someone else anywhere in the world. Well, Ethereum has made that prohibitive, right? Because you can have a $100 fee to send $10. So what are the challenges? You know, you're stable and there's no fees associated, but what are the challenges with building with blockchains that have their own, you know, inherent uh, issues uh, scaling? So, well, definitely, um, you know, when we, um, uh, Tether started in, um, from, uh, from uh, OmniLayer, then in 2018, moved, early 2018, moved to Ethereum, uh, not moved, but launched also Ethereum. And that was uh, quite, started to be a success, of course, when exchanges adopted, right? So, because if there is no, uh, the truth to be said, the majority of the stablecoin volume passed through exchanges still. Right, so from centralized exchanges. Now, you know, in the end of 2017, I'm pretty sure that you remember how high were the fees on, on Bitcoin, right? So that's why many traders were spending an enormous amount of, mata, of money on Bitcoin fees because uh, OmniLayer is secured by the Bitcoin network. And so is spending, in order to spend better on OmniLayer, you have to spend, to, to spend the Bitcoin, right? So that was a little bit annoying for, for traders. And uh, at some point you had to, they were sending, uh, you know, maybe hundreds of transactions per day back and forth. And if you have to pay $200 for, for 100 transactions, it's a lot of money, right? That you have to spend in a, in a day uh, in transaction fees. So we added Ethereum then, of course, it, it didn't pick up immediately, but only when Wobby and I think that OKX started adopting it, then you have you it, there was uh, an immediate uh, let's say uh, movement of liquidity from from Omni to Ethereum. Then we added Tron, we added EOS, and so on. We so first of all the reason of being multi-chain is something that came to our minds because um, I'm sure if that you're familiar with the concept of the Linux distributions, right? So you have Red Hat, you have like Gentoo, Debian, Ubuntu, and all these distributions. And I, I came from a world where, you know, we were all there and we were, you know, everyone in uh, the uh, computer Linux distribution. So 
Um, and basically, the, the concept is similar, right? So there are kind of religion wars across blockchains like there are uh, across Linux distributions. But in the Linux distribution, there is one central part that is always common across all the different distributions. It's the Linux kernel, right? The Linux kernel is the, that thing, is the core that is common across all the distributions. So we thought, okay, why we don't make uh, tether as the common denominator across all the different blockchains. So of course we pick the blockchains based on the popularity, on the community size, and so on. Because of course we want to maximize our return in terms of adoption. But that was basically the main idea: how we can make tether the thing that, despite you know the little little religion wars that happen, you know that that is, as well, right? Like you know, we like Ethereum, Bitcoin, and then Avalanche and uh, Solana and so on. You 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 are you, you are, you know, uh, 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 well aware of the tribalism, you know? certainly. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so we, we thought that pattern could could be at least something in common. Then, of course, the benefit, the side benefit, is that you can get scalability out of it, right? Because we talked at the beginning of our our chat about uh, how we can reach the billion people, right? Um, and yes, centralized exchanges have a problem, but you know. At least uh, just with our current setup, our Bitfinex matching engine can handle like five million transactions per second. And uh, but you know the the fastest blockchain now uh, can do five fifty thousand transactions per second if if you are lucky. And uh, you know even if you scale to one million transactions per second or five million transactions per second, I mean we are talking about billions of people that are going to spend back and forth money and. There's something that we didn't touch, and then I think that is one of the most exciting things in for our future. Sorry if I digress a little bit. Please. But is machine-to-machine payments. So we are living and we are living in crypto, but some somehow we are forgetting that there is a one big revolution that is happening in part of that is Internet of Things. And um, there are fridges that are talking to you know um, supermarkets as well as light bulbs that have like uh, a Wi-Fi basically built in, right? And there are cars that are moving around the world. There are uh, several hundreds of millions of cars that are moving around the world and, you know, motors, scooters and so on. All these will be connected, right? They will be connected and they will, they will have ways to send transactions. That's not necessarily have payments. Not all transactions are payments, but some transactions are sharing data. Right? So machine to machine, if we are thinking that also robotics will evolve and so on, we, can, we have to think that the world will become more connected and machine will send, start sending transactions among themselves, right? Not commanded by humans, but commanded by their own will. AI, what, right. sure. yeah. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, uh, maybe a, a, an AI would like to buy a nice pop, uh, a nice NFT of a wine bottle, right? Eventually. And so you have to let that AI do that. So I believe that the current stuff of the blockchains is not great for scalability. And, uh, well, there is only one solution, in my opinion, that is can can, can achieve that in, in the, at least from from what I'm seeing today, and that is like a network, because the beauty of it is like, um, you know, if I have to send you uh, some money, is caught, I mean, or some some data, there is no, it's not necessary as long as the channel between me and you, as long as I can send the data safely or the money safely, and I'm not going to cheat you, and so that is enforced by the, the system, 
then why, why someone else should look at the data that they're sending you or the payment that they send you? And by the way, you're needing the entire industry is built on the concept of peer-to-peer. -peer. And sometimes we use peer-to-peer -peer in a way that is um, a little bit agnostic or anyways, uh, lost a little bit of meaning. But peer-to-peer peer means like every one of us is a peer and a machine is likely going to be a peer. In the sense that everyone is the same, everyone can is counts in the same way in the system, right? Has the same weight in the system. Now, the 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 beauty of um, of the peer-to-peer -peer system and why you can scale, if you if you recall in the in the past where uh, Gnutella as a file sharing system that we have Gnutella, we have like Udonkey, we have uh, like uh, Napster, of course, and many others, right? And then came BitTorrent. BitTorrent was the perfect peer-to-peer -peer file sharing system because you know you could you could see information, but you know other you could, you had the concept of swarm. So I could uh, host a file, you would take the file from me, and then you could at the same time share the file and share the file with other uh, file the same file with others. And every single connection was not using any centralized server. Everything was happening from one to another. While now blockchains, in order to be fast, needs to use AWS. They need to use Infura. So they, they are not scalable. We are losing the concept of peer-to-peer -peer in the blockchain ecosystem. And Lightning Network brings that back, right? So I can send you money, I can send you data without having to bother others, without forcing others to read my data or parse my data or include my data in their own blocks, in their own server, whatever, right? So that's the beauty of Lightning Network. I believe that is the thing that can allow actually uh, blockchain to scale to billions of people. Now, of course, people say, well, but with Lightning Network, you have to initiate a channel that requires some main chain transactions, like Bitcoin transactions. So Bitcoin cannot cope with the amount we, if we open billions of channels, Bitcoin will not be able to cope with that. But then you can use a side chain like Liquid, so you can build Lightning Network. That is the composability. You, you can still have Lightning Network on top of Liquid that is on top of that settles on Bitcoin, right? So there are many things that you can do. You still have the Bitcoin security on one side, but you have the super scalability of Lightning Networking on the other side. In a world where uh, artificial intelligence is buying wine with uh, Tether, I'm afraid that Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> is going to walk in the door for the future and <laughs> Terminator is going to come in, right? Um, so that's really interesting. And it seems to me that it's still very segmented. You know, you're building Tether on this chain, Tether on this chain, Tether on this chain. For your average person who doesn't understand any of the tech, let's say that they have a MetaMask wallet and somebody sends them some Tether, right? And then they want to send a transaction for cheap, but somebody sends them a TRX, you know, a Tron wallet. And they want to get that Tether from their MetaMask Ethereum wallet to a Tron wallet. How do they do that? Or how should they understand how to do that? Well, so it, it's a tricky one, right? Because um, there are some bridges. So there are there are um, so many many projects build on chain bridges. So you have Tether on Ethereum, so on your MetaMask on Ethereum, and then you want them to appear in on your um, wallet that you can access via Tronscan, right? Tronscan has any embedded wallet. Tronscan is the main Tronic store. Now, what you could do, you can use. Um, bridges on chain bridges that what the the what they do is usually they receive your tether from one side and they issue 
a graph tether on the other blockchain. So, you know, the, the user experience is not the best because then you have a graph tether on the other side, right? So it is not great. Others maintain a sort of liquidity pool on one side and the other, so they can give you nothing tether on both sides. Or the other way is using a centralized chain. So you send your tether from Ethereum to, for example, BitMEX, and then you would uh, you will get credited tethers and you can withdraw tethers on Tron and you will get thematic tethers. So I'm not sure if I'm making it too complex already because no, no, that's that, that that's actually my point. So it's if, I think if you're in the ecosystem and you've spent some time transacting and you've sent coins around, that makes sense. But I think your average person is going to go in their MetaMask wallet, which they don't understand anyway, try to plug in a Tron address. Get an error or send their coins into the uh, into the e ether and Oblivion. never get it back. Right? Yeah. So I guess the question then becomes: What tools still need to be put in place to scale this to the point where we can have mainstream adoption, and you know, our 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 parents and grandparents can transact with it in a manner as comfortably as they do with PayPal or Venmo or bank transfers that they're that they're familiar with. Well, I think that uh, you are basically getting right to the point. The main issue for, for uh, definitely, so the main two issues for, for mass adoptions are scalability and uh, user experience. But first of all is user experience, right? So in MetaMask is already a too complex system, right? It's all about addresses and ledger integration and uh, scratching your head because your transactions didn't went through, then you have to- And you paid for it. Bump. And yeah. you paid for it, paid a hundred dollars yeah. for a failed transaction, right? So exactly. So it's all about uh, you know we should start forgetting probably about uh, about um, using old complex terms and trying to get to terms that people are more used to, right? So like um, account instead of address, and uh, uh, and that you have to mask all the complexity of ensuring that the transaction will will arrive on the other side. And of course, the fees are, I mean. The problem, main problem will be the fees, right? Because we cannot afford to bring people on crypto and or well, let's say switching behind the scenes, the transport layer of money for the majority of the people on this earth, if we don't get them something that will not cost them more money in fees than sending payments. Because if I want to buy, you know, in Italy, in, from where I come from, there is the best capture that you can ever have, right? You can ever dream of. And you know, you go on usually you go on the, on the, on the store. You can pay you know one with one dollar. You get a lot of uh, of capital, right? And uh, you know you, you cannot pay like fifty dollars in in Ethereum fees and then have one dollar of capital. Now uh, you can definitely use Tron. You can definitely use Liquid and others, um, but definitely not Ethereum. But also, you know, the the what I'm currently thinking about is that the reason why you have all, all these cheap transaction fees on the other blockchains that the adoption is not there on those blockchains, right? There is right. If they, they can't scale either. If they, I mean, if they start yeah. to get the same kind of traffic that Ethereum has, we're going to start to see problems. Solana was just down for 20 hours. Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and uh, usually transaction fees are just a way to, to make it more, is a protection, right? So transaction fees are just a protection to avoid uh, to, to avoid congestions. You still have congestions because from a user perspective, they, they send a transaction with a cheap fee and it will not get accepted. So it's anyway, uh, is with really bad user experience. But you know, if you are going to see you know, other um, faster blockchains, 
with real adoption, with a really high adoption, the one that uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum have, they will have really high fees as well, because anyway, they will, the, the fees are still based, the, there is a prioritization based on fees, right? So that will happen in a way. So the fact that they claim that they're cheaper now, yes, they are cheaper because the blocks are empty. So we need to, to solve the problem in the right way, that is, go back to the idea of having layer twos or being peer-to-peer, pure peer-to-peer. Peer-to-peer like Lightning Network or having layer twos that are a little bit more centralized, like, you know, Hermes, so you can have Arbitrum or you can have Optimism. They're a good way to compress uh, the data from a transaction from many different people, like 1,000 different people that want to do a transaction, they compress it and they generate just one main chain, one layer, one block. So you think that the solution will be layer twos, roll-ups, things like that, that consolidate transactions and decongest the layer ones. But that's interesting uh, because, like you said, these layer ones sort of advertise that they're um, faster and cheaper, but you're saying that they will still reach problems at scale. So the, as of right now, we do not have layer ones that could scale to you know mainstream adoption. I don't think so, but I don't think it will be possible. So and the problem is in the speed of light, actually, right? So if you want to have a layer one that is basically have, you know, the entire history of all the transactions made and all the state changes of all the transactions made on the chain, you know, the problem is that you either you have a nice AWS infrastructure in the same location, like in UK, and then it's all about everything in the same data center room, or you have to imagine that the, the speed of the, the speed of light from um, London to Tokyo is probably 150 milliseconds, something like that, right? So how much you can shorten the block time if uh, basically if you still have 100 milliseconds, right? So minimum, let's say, and you have to back and go back and forth, right? So 300 milliseconds. So you cannot shorten the block time more than 300 milliseconds, maybe. So probably 500 milliseconds is already the peak because there is a computational time and you know, there is a link, you want to leave a little bit of time. has to be some latency, time. right, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, that, that's the main problem. So you have to have a, you have to have a, way, a system that is slow. So it's not subject to the problems of speed of light and so on, but acts is, is simpler, but acts as a second layer for multiple, many, many different layers of solutions for different, with different flavors that will take care of the heavy load. Right. So I believe that's the only way to scale that is, is I mean, that's a standard architecture. It's really, you, you cannot build something, even a machine engine like I, the one I built, I can probably go to 20 million, 50 million transactions per second, fine, but that's centralized. And if I try to, to put one, one in, in New York and one in, uh, in, uh, in, I cannot go to New York. I cannot put it in New York because otherwise <laughs> our legal team will kill me. But, um, anywhere but, but the uh, United States, right? Okay. Yes, right, anywhere right. but the United States, but still you, you get the point, right? So, so it will slow down because there is the synchronization problem. So this, this is the best way. So there is no way to get to mass adoption with billions of transactions or let's say, tens of millions of transactions per second if we want to solve the global scale. So we have to be careful how we market things, right? So depending, so if you want to solve the current crypto transaction issue that is, okay, yes, Ethereum is slow and Ethereum is, uh, is expensive, definitely there are other choices. But when we are talking about billions of people and possibly uh, 
hundreds of billions of machines talking to other machines and right. light bulbs and other things and all the devices, then we, are, we need to be more, extremely more careful because there is no way to scale in that way. And we have to carefully design to segregate things in channels, in basically in silos, so that they don't, every silo don't need to talk to each other. And, silo, and channels are the perfect representation of silos because I don't care to, to know if a light bulb on, on, in, in Tokyo is, uh, is, uh, is on or off, right? Or if it's buying wine. Um, <laughs> I don't want to know what those Tokyo light bulbs are doing with their alcohol. Um, so I guess that it's very fair to say that we're extremely early. Yes, that, that's for sure. That's, that's the only thing that we know. Do you think that that's true um, with adoption and price and all of those things or just with the technology itself? Well, definitely um, for price, uh, when it comes to Bitcoin, we are early, I think. For the rest, I don't know, um, because I believe that uh, there is a little, a bit of a um, difference of the value proposition of Bitcoin in its simplicity, quote-unquote simplicity, compared to everything else. But with the ability, again, to compose with the uh, Lightning Network, the Liquid, and other uh, things on top of it, right? So on the price side, I could uh, say that. On the technological side, we're extremely early. Adoption, really extremely early, because in the end, we want in 10 years, 15 years, we will not talk too much about crypto. Just, you know, the core people will talk about crypto just to prefer about maybe the, the technology. But, in, you know, five years ago was 2016, and there was no, almost no crypto. There were a few people that were, you know, aping on a few coins and, uh, you know, um, a little, really little adoption, right? So in five years, we, we created this enormous ecosystem that is growing at a faster pace, it's exponentially growing. So imagine what will happen in 15 years. In my opinion, in 15 years, will, crypto will be as a, will be an asset class and will crypto as a, let's say a technology will replace the majority of the settlement layers and transport layers that we have in, uh, in, 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 you know, in general in, 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 on the internet, right? So we'll become a, better way and a safer way to you know, transact and data store data and, and so on. So it will be part of our lives. Many of us will not maybe think anymore about uh, crypto as, you know, um, just necessarily hating on coins and so on. So for example, I think that Bitfinex will just become a mainstream uh, exchange because we are starting to offering, we've got to just got the license to offer security. So, you know, we started from crypto and we are getting to securities offering while we are seeing like uh, traditional exchanges that are looking to crypto. So eventually okay. things will, will, will merge. The same. Right, everything will yes. merge. Sure. Every legacy exchange will offer, offer crypto and every single crypto exchange will have tokenized <laughs> securities. And that's exactly. how, right. I, I think that's how we will proceed for sure. So where can everybody follow you after this conversation and keep up with what you're, what you're doing? So I'm basically on Twitter. Um, so uh, twitter.com slash Arduino. I'm making most of the time I'm making jokes and memes. So uh, <laughs> Me I hope too. that you enjoy them. <laughs> I think that's the only real purpose of Twitter, right? Yes, exactly. I think what I've gotten from this is that, uh, you know, you were very early 2012. I came in in 2016. I felt like I was late, but I was still no, early yes. enough. And now people who are coming in who feel like they're late are probably still very early. Absolutely, yes. There is so much to do, so much to learn, so much, yeah, to, uh, there, there, 
there's so much space for everyone that that it will be unbelievable looking back 15 years. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was a great conversation. Thank you very much, Scott. It was really fun.